Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Hannah Gibson. Hannah is a fellow SOASian, and she is now a lecturer in linguistics at the University of Essex. She holds a BA in Swahili and law and an MA and PhD in linguistics, all from SOAS. Her research is primarily concerned with linguistic variation, particularly why and how languages change. Much of her work explores the syntax and semantics of the Bantu languages, with a focus on languages spoken in Eastern Africa. She has conducted data collection in Tanzania, Kenya, and the UK. In this episode, Hannah and I discuss her work, her daily research routine, and why we should think critically about what we mean when we use the term fieldwork. Okay, so welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, so to start, can you talk a bit about where you've done fieldwork, your fieldwork biography? Yeah, absolutely. So most of my research is on languages spoken in East Africa. The biggest chunk of time I've spent kind of doing data collection is in Tanzania. So my PhD was on a language called Rangi, which is spoken in central Tanzania. Yeah, in a wonderful sort of part of the bottom of the Rift Valley, essentially. So I spent a good chunk of time in Tanzania. And then in a subsequent project, um, I was looking a little bit at Rangi, but also some languages spoken up near Lake Victoria. So up on the border between Tanzania and Kenya for a chunk of time as well, around a town called Musoma. And then I literally last week just got back from a fantastic trip to South Africa, um, which is part of a new project where I'm working on two South African languages, Sesutu and Setswana. So I just got back from a tiny bit of uh, data collection in South Africa. But yeah, that's sort of the main the main picture. So Rangi is an endangered language, right? Yeah. So I mean, I can, I, yeah, I can expand on that a little bit. Okay. Um, so yeah, so Rangi is spoken by about 300,000 people um, okay. in Central Tanzania. So like in some respects, it's really quite a large language. I know there's people who right. work with much smaller communities or are part of much smaller communities. But in the context of Tanzania, where there's something like 120 languages, and then Swahili plays this kind of lingua franca role across Tanzania, it's the official language, language of primary education, language of administration. Most people would sort of think that all other languages are threatened to some extent in that they're increasingly not being passed down to like younger generations. As people move to urban centres, they tend not to kind of transmit them or use them as much as they did. So, yeah, Rangi wouldn't be sort of on the yeah uh, top of the list in terms of endangerment, but I think all other languages in Tanzania are probably threatened. And in the context of Rangi, that's relevant. So, you know, I went there as a linguist interested in a very particular <laughs> syntactic structure, but people were sort of saying, well, why are you interested in this? You know, why when you go back to England, who will you be talking Rangi to? You know, what will you do with yeah. this? So that was always really interesting. And yeah, so that's sort of spoken in, in the Kondoa area of central Tanzania, which is a really interesting linguistic part of the world or interesting linguistic part of East Africa. So people have kind of divided the languages of Africa into four broad language families, or this is a sort of former approach. And Tanzania is the only place in Africa where you have languages from all four of the language families found. So you oh, have cool. huge levels of linguistic diversity 
in one particular area. And I was interested in language contact, which is why I started to look at look at Rangi. So yeah, you have this you know, quite sort of vibrant, thriving community of Rangi speakers around the town of Kondoa and the neighbouring villages. But yeah, the area has for a long time been home to speakers of other languages, completely unrelated and very distantly related languages. And then yeah, over the top of that kind of Swahili throughout the area. And I was based in a small village called uh, Haubi, which is on the lake, beautiful um, in the centre, sort of Rangi-speaking part of uh, the area. So yeah, that's sort of where I spent most of my time because I spent about 12 months there doing research for my PhD. So that's the kind of longest chunk of time. And then what I was looking at in Rangi is a particularly sort of a word order um, variation, which is unusual. So I'm a syntactician. I'm interested in those kind of things. And at that time, I had only noticed that you have this order. So you get the verb before the auxiliary in Rangi. But over the course of my PhD, I found another few languages which do this as well. So I did a project after that as part of some postdoctoral research, which took me up to this other area of Tanzania. So they're not sort of neighbouring areas, but you also find a group of languages there. So that's on the edge of the Serengeti uh, National Park and Lake Victoria. And there's four other languages spoken there, which also have this unusual word order. So yeah, that's the kind of what's going on. So you have yeah high levels of multilingualism, small communities, with some of these other languages, like Ngurem and Simbiti, it's more like kind of 50,000 speakers. Okay. So they're smaller. But again, with this kind of role of Swahili as this like national language and definitely language of wider communication, um, high levels of multilingualism. And then, yeah, I mean, I can talk about the South Africa trip <laughs> separately, yeah. but that's brand new. That's like very fresh off the fresh off the press. So, I think yeah. I have a question later that's only about your newest Fantastic. Then project. We can come so, back to that. Yeah, we can come back to that. Um, and then also you did data collection in the UK for the for your PhD project as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, this was a good point. So when I was working with um, Rangi speakers and I was working in Tanzania, people would often say to me, you know, why are you here? And, you know, why are you interested in Rangi? And I would sort of try and explain. And then often they would say, well, who will you speak Rangi to when you go back to the UK? And actually what I did when I got back to the UK is I sent out a few messages in the kind of UK Tanzanian community to find if there are any find out if there are any Rangi speakers in the UK. I was also just interested in their experiences and meeting other Tanzanians and sort of but also I thought like oh I've got a few more sentences it would be nice to check and when I first got to Halby, where I was based, that was the first year they had mobile phone coverage. They put up a mobile phone mast just before I got there. There was no electricity uh, and you know, it's off grid. So it wasn't like I could send people you know, an email or definitely then a WhatsApp message. Yeah. Now I think I could send people a WhatsApp message or you know, get them on Facebook. But this was sort of yeah a while back. So you couldn't do that. And I thought if there was a Rangi speaker in the UK... Maybe I could meet with them. And someone got back in touch with me and said, actually, my wife grew up in this area and she speaks Rangi and she is based in Preston. So not even in London. So I was like, oh, this isn't great because I thought maybe I could meet up with someone. But anyway, we sort of got in touch and we would speak on the phone and, and things like that. And so it's a very different type of data collection, if you want. It's not, yeah, the contrast was spending 12 months living in a community, you know, talking to people, learning greetings and things on a day-to-day basis. But I think this is also really important because, yeah, what I wanted to do was more of the kind of like checking or, you know, I suppose, elicitation or getting a second opinion or a third opinion on stuff. And then I could pick up the phone and you know speak to (laughs) Vanessa in Preston. And yes, with the sort of additions that she wasn't any longer living in that community, she's obviously, you know, away from home. She now uses other languages on a day-to-day basis. But that's still also a great source of, of totally. information. And I think, I mean, living in London, really the whole world is here. And I know that I'm not 
the only person who's yeah. done that. So who's reached out to speaker communities here or has one way or another or in other countries as well, like find that there are communities in France or in Portugal of people from Mozambique or other parts of the world. And I think it's really helpful for us to keep that at the back of our minds yeah. as well as a fantastic resource. Completely. Um, and sometimes they have different ideas and pers- um, perspectives on things as well, which is always interesting. Yeah, yeah that's so true. The community I work with, they speak a language called Amami. And in 2004, it was estimated that there were about 1800 speakers. And so, so much smaller, but even for that language, there are speakers here in London. Oh, wow. Fantastic. So, which you, you completely wouldn't expect, right? Yeah. And did you meet them or did people tell you about them? I mean, how um, did you come across? Yeah. So people just friend of a friend, really. They were like, Oh, you're working on a mommy. Well, you should meet this person. And they actually have, um, like a retirement group of older people who all speak Amami, they're all from Amami, and they're here in London. That's fantastic. So yeah, yeah. I think it's really important that we remember that because it's always easy to kind of think that the only way of finding these things out is to go in this sort of particular approach and immerse yourself in yeah. the context. And that has great advantages. But yeah, there's other yeah. options as well. Do you want to talk now about the term fieldwork and how we think it's kind of a, like an exotic adventure in the jungle if you will but like you know data collection in the uk is also field work absolutely yeah um so i mean i've <laughs> i avoid using the term field work mm-hmm. but i don't really have an alternative word so i find myself saying data collection because i think that's one of the things that i mean yeah. although of course field work is a sort of bigger kind of project yeah i so i'm i'm really wary of using the word field work i think as long as we use the word field work to involve to refer to getting on a plane and going to Tanzania and spending time with the community and the same things in East London or in Manchester, then I don't have a problem with the term fieldwork. But what I find increasingly is that people use it only to talk about those, yeah, going somewhere else, going far away, and also a particular kind of idea of what that looks like, right? Mm -hmm. So how you have to live, how you interact with people. And then if you do that, you've got this like genuine legitimate image of a community and I actually think like even if I now lived in a place for 30 years like I'm still an outsider the way that people talk to me interact with me my experiences of the world are still different so I think I don't have a problem with the word in itself but I think often we use it to refer to only one kind of thing so I try not to use it in a bid to try and get people to (laughs) challenge that or to use it when I'm talking like, oh, I'm just going on the central line to Barking and I'm going to do some field work in East London. Because what's the difference, right? And I think it also, the other thing it it does is, so one of the things I think I've said is that I also worked with Rangi speakers who were linguists. Mm -hmm. And I think it, you know, what if you are working on a language you speak or what if you're working on a language spoken by a community that you're part of? What position does that put you in in terms of field work? Does it immediately undermine your experiences and your insights does it immediately position you as an outsider i think there are really interesting tensions and i'm i don't work with communities that i'm part of but i think again just sort of saying oh well what does that mean i have friends who are working on their languages their community languages and if i'm talking about field work and i only mean it in this narrow kind of way then the danger is that i'm kind of undermining the really important work and important contributions they're making as well yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting and important point. I think I'm taking kind of the second approach that you mentioned where I consider field work to be everything. Everything is field work. Getting on the tube to go <laughs> to barking is field work. You know, uh, we had two, um, insider researchers who are working on their own languages and 
they're going to the field, but really they're going home. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but I, I think it's definitely worth mentioning that and trying to have a more critical sense of the word. Absolutely. And I think, so I, I agree, like there's there's two ways of doing it. One is to use it to refer to everything and one is to use it to refer to nothing. And mm-hmm. I think because most of my research is in Africa and I'm immediately positioned as a an outsider, I've chosen the, the, the first option, which is not to refer to it as fieldwork. Because then when I go to conferences that are working on African languages, most of the people are also in the same position as me. I go to conferences in Europe, it's lots of people from Europe and North America talking about Africa. Yeah. And again, I'm just trying to perhaps... It's a sort of small measure, but trying to highlight that or make people aware of it. I also hear people sort of say things like, oh, I'm going to my field and things like that. Which, or it's my language. Yeah. yeah I and, work on my language. Right. Yeah. And I sort of, again, like, you know, so also the danger that I have as, as, a, as a native English speaker, I don't want to be policing other people's language use as well. So like the fact that I've just chosen not to do this doesn't mean that I now want to go around and say like, oh, don't call it fieldwork. But at the same time, part of me inside is thinking like, you know, if we're yeah. using it like that, then we have to use it consistently across the board. Yeah. Um, and I think, but I think like at the moment, it's also like gathering kind of currency, this kind of discussion. Lots of people in other disciplines have perhaps done more of this work already. So in sort of sociology, anthropology, I think there's a lot more discourse around this and how people position themselves as researchers and where they are and what their perspectives are. And that's not to say that linguists and linguistics haven't done it, but I think, you know, we need to be doing more of, more of that. Um, yeah. I mean, you kind of like have hit the nail on the head for why I wanted to make this podcast in the first place was to show that fieldwork doesn't have to be just like one kind of stereotypical idea that I think a lot of people have. And also there's this, I don't, I don't know if you feel this way, but there's definitely this feeling somewhere that people who go to places that are like very remote are, or without electricity and who have to like wash themselves out of a bucket are like the real field workers. And then people who go to places that have electricity or people who do field work in London are just like um, having these like lush research trips with like out hardships. But of course, like no matter where your field work is, you are going to have challenges. And just because you're going someplace with electricity doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, but I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like I think having this discussion, particularly for people who are going to do this kind of work. So I think when I was doing my PhD, I was also lucky enough to have friends from other subjects. So people who are doing politics and anthropology and the way that people talk about, in their case, perhaps developing ethnographies or doing interviews. Like it can be really different and it can look really different, but also there's sort of similarities across, yeah. across our, our disciplines. But I think, yeah, particularly perhaps studying somewhere like at SOAS where, you know, if you're sort of doing Swahili, then that's really kind of mainstream. Um, it's really, <laughs> it's really easy to forget when you go out into the rest of the world that that's not kind of like mainstream. That's so you know. true. Yeah. You know, your language, like the word language you're working on has got 300,000 speakers. Wow. That's so massive. basic. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone else is like, wow, that's really small. But yeah, but there is, so I think there is something important though about talking about, like if I go on the train to Barking and I sit down with people for two hours, that is a really different personal experience for me than spending a year or a month or six months in a context where I'm surrounded by the language and the kind of insights and the kind of conversations that I'm going to have on a day-to-day basis are also going to inform my understanding of the language, mm-hmm. even as a syntactician or, you know, someone who's doing like, um, you know, phonetics or something like I think you still get that bigger picture by being in that context. But yeah, if I'm doing, you know, elicitation or if I'm doing, you know, video recordings because I'm interested in a particular like articulators or something, like I can still answer those questions in 
101 different ways, really, which yeah. don't all involve you know living off grid and you know like yeah. having a having a tough time because these are also it's, I mean it's a fantastic privilege to be able to go somewhere and live somewhere else for 12 months and to be in my case welcomed in with you know open arms and a bit of a curiosity about who this person was who was suddenly like you know living totally. living with you but it's also yeah like some of the most sort of amazing and unique experiences that I've had yeah uh, so any thoughts on what we as linguists can do to decolonize language documentation? Big question. It is a big question. Um, yeah, I think... So I think there's a bit of a sort of momentum at the moment and a lot more discussion of decolonization of all sorts of things. Um, so decolonizing our curriculum has really picked up and the university uh, more broadly. And I think, again, as linguists and people working in linguistics, that we need to be part of this. I think mm -hmm. we should be driving it as well and being critical of our own discipline. I think in my sort of way of thinking of things and my field of linguistics, I suppose, there's different elements. So there's how you do the research, which touches on some of the stuff that we're, you know, labelling data collection and, and fieldwork type things. But being aware of and then ultimately avoiding extractive kind of practices. So, you know, arrive in Tanzania, you know, get all my sentences and then leave. I think is to be, never be seen again. Yeah, is to be really avoided. I think even if you're just interested in the linguistic data that you get, I think it's just not going to be as good. So yeah. even if you're not concerned about the kind of ethical and power structures that are attached to that, I just don't think the work will be as good. So I think connections with local linguists in our case as linguists, and local research institutions. or So it's not always universities, so there may be other institutions. I know in Malawi they have something called the Centre for Language Studies, which, okay. you know, there's also sort of organisations that do things around orthography development and educational, things like that. Similar in South Africa, you know, there would be different boards of literature and, you know, literary sort of stuff that you might want to speak to. And I think then saying like, oh, well, shall we write things together? Or what research is being done at the university at the moment? How can I fit into that? Can I contribute things? What can I learn from you as well, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, colleagues at the University of Dar es Salaam have been doing this work since before I was born. So me sort of getting in and thinking like, oh, what can I teach you? I, again, sort of stopping yourself or questioning you know, that a little bit. So I suppose there's sort of that side of things. And then what you do afterwards. So I think in terms of funding, for example, there's some specific funding to encourage kind of north-south collaborations, but the funding is still comes from the global north and often is held in northern institutions. And I think, again, we need to, if we're going to be involved in those projects, ensure that things are in place that sort of say like, okay, so what are the outcomes that I want what are the outcomes that my colleagues want? They may be the same, but they may be different. Like mm -hmm. people have different pressures on them. Um, we're talking here about REF, so the Research Excellence Framework, you know, which takes place every seven years in the UK. And if you're a researcher in Malawi or Kenya, that wouldn't be the same pressure that you're under, but you might have a different set of pressures. You might have 2,000 people in your <laughs> classes. Like, So sort of setting joint agendas and then working out where we can compromise and things like that. Um, funding, I think conference is a big issue. So the African Studies Association UK just did a massive exercise gathering information relation to visa rejections from Africa-based colleagues and scholars who were trying to come to the biannual conference here and showed that a disproportionate number of colleagues from Africa were being denied visas to come to conferences. Here in the UK. Here in the UK specifically. And this was taken to Parliament and there was a discussion on it um, a few weeks ago. And I think it's really important to do that and to say to Parliament in the UK, this is not on. But I think we can also be asking, like, and should we then be doing a partner conference every other year in an African country mm -hmm. 
that has its own problems, particularly in the case of Africa, but I'm sure in other parts of the world as well, in that travel between African countries is often as expensive as coming to Europe. Mm. So it's not automatically the fact that if you have a conference in Nigeria, you have a conference in South Africa, all of your colleagues from Africa suddenly it's can much come. yeah can come. They also have visa issues and, and, and finances. But again, we can't continue to have like conferences you know, just sort of in the north, the global north, and especially with yeah, visas and, and finances. I suppose similar things for journals and publishing. Yeah. So the the sort of bulk of those being based in, in institutions and being very costly. So subscriptions that individuals couldn't afford, institutions couldn't afford. And I think in linguistics, that's something we're doing really well on. So there's things like Language Science Press, there's Glossar, which has gone, you know, open access in a big sort of movement to say this is information that should be available. Um, I'm paid or I have access to funds to gather it. Why should someone else have to pay again to then read it, including yeah. myself sometimes, right? Like, I think I'm supposed to buy an article I wrote, which is just, you know, as a, as a model. I mean, they've got a great, you know, a great stuff, a racket. And then I think finally, as I'm now a, a lecturer, and this is something that I have to sort of think about, um, also teaching linguistics. So there's all sorts of ways in which we can teach linguistics, which don't just relate to sort of concepts of, yeah, you know, grammatical functions and things like that. But linguistic discrimination is widespread. Um, there's been interesting studies on discrimination in like legal cases and, and different languages, different varieties, the stigma that's associated with them. So bringing our students into the classroom and university not being a place where students are saying like, oh, I don't have this kind of English or I don't have this kind of style of writing. None of us are native speakers of academic English or academic any other language. So we're all moving towards some sort of new register, a new form. And when we're learning, I think it would be great if our students have examples from languages they speak, languages from communities that they may be part of, diaspora, should really be reflected because I think, again, we have such a fantastic a potential to make such a fantastic contribution uh, as it links to race, as it links to ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic background, and not to see that as somehow separate from linguistics. Because on the day-to-day basis, like I think basically the first word out of someone's mouth, you can often make 101 assumptions correctly or, you know, or incorrectly about yeah. them. And this is also the work of linguistics. Like it might not be my area of study, but if I'm teaching and if I have you know, the classroom, I think it's really important that we bring that into the classroom. So that's perhaps slightly broader than this idea of decolonising subject, decolonising linguistics or whatever. But I think what I'm sort of thinking of is like almost linguistics or language studies for um, social justice. So there's movements like maths for social justice, particularly in the US, actually saying, OK, these are our students. What can we do that helps this subject be a portal for addressing inequalities as they exist in society rather than like a side yeah. They've got to do that somewhere else. That's not for our classrooms. So, yeah, I think it's really exciting. I think it's something that I'm really committed to and I'm not quite sure what it will look like over the next few years. But it's, I think it's there's not an option not to do this kind of work, really. Yeah, um, I think it's urgent. Yeah, well said. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about your main research interests? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm interested in language contact. So what happens when languages are in contact with each other? What happens in bilingual and often multilingual contexts? And particularly how languages then change. I really work on structures, so kind of syntax and, and morphosyntax. And the reason that I started working on Rangi is that it had these, you know, before I, when I was sort of looking for a PhD topic, had these two examples that came from Rangi that someone else, um, Oliver Stegen, had had sort of found or, or described and it showed this unusual word order. So you have the verb before the auxiliary, which is unusual in the context of Bantu languages. So Rangi is a Bantu language. 
unusual in the context of East African languages. And also, Rangi has a subject-verb-object order. So it's unusual in that, it, that it's like English. It should have the auxiliary before the verb. And one of the suggestions was that this was a result of language contact. So I've described this area of, of central Tanzania as very linguistically diverse. And so I set off to look at language contact and sort of find out that it was, yes, it was due to contact with uh, Cushitic language spoken in the north or something like that. And I think pretty much throughout my entire PhD thesis, I don't mention language contact once. <laughs> so, I mean, I do, I think, in sort of avenues for future research, because en- essentially ended up looking at this particular construction, which was much more rich and complicated and interesting than I had known about in the first first place. And I also have a theoretical analysis of it. So I work in a particular framework called dynamic syntax. So half of it's a description of broadly Rangi morpho syntax and the other half's this formal analysis. But at the end of the thesis, when I have these avenues for future research, I come back to this idea of, well, where on earth did this verb auxiliary order come from? And then I started looking at it in other languages. So I'm interested in how structures change as a result of language contact, and also whether there are ways in which languages don't change, which Again, you know, so you can sort of say like, oh, well, if you use that word, I borrow that word, fine. Or if you use that sound, then I borrow that sound. But what does it mean to say that a structure of a language has changed in terms of how children learn languages, in terms of how languages are passed on? And in terms of like, perhaps universal constraints, like are the ways in which languages don't Don't change? change. And I mean, we need to know so much more about the world's languages to be able to answer that. But those are the kind of driving questions behind pretty much all of my research um, today. And that's sort of, I've come back full circle, so I'm still still interested in language contact. And, you know, most of the work that I do at the moment is looking at variation. And then, yeah, specifically, most of my work's been on the Bantu languages. So it's a group of something like 450 to 600 languages spoken across Central, Eastern and Southern Africa, depending on how you count languages and dialects right. and, and, and things like that. Yeah. Can you, shifting gears slightly, can you give some details about your current project? So South Africa? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm part of a, a new project um, with a colleague, um, Christina Riedel, who's based at the University of the Free State in South Africa. And this is looking at variation in two of South Africa's official languages, so Sisutu and Setswana, particularly how these languages are spoken in the Free State. Again, still looking at structures and things more specifically, but... There's a few things driving the project. So one is that there's some description and some documentation of these two languages. They're massive languages spoken by millions of people and official languages. What people have said for Setswana is that there's dialectal variation, but people have said for Sesotho that there's no dialectal variation. And it just doesn't seem reasonable given that there's millions of people and they're spoken in different areas. Um, So we're interested in variation, but we're particularly interested in variation between urban and rural varieties. And in the context of South Africa, the kind of orthography and the forms that are used in education and in official documentation are based on this kind of like rural variety that was codified primarily by missionaries and sort of people at the time of, of missionaries. And the idea is that when kids now get to school and they're fluent Sutu speakers, they get to school and it's like us being taught maths in like, I don't know, Shakespeare in English or something. Like it's yeah. it's not a realistic re- reflection of the language as they know it. And this has all sorts of barriers, as you can imagine, for just understanding, participation in class, educational access yeah. and attainment, and just sharing information, right? And otherwise you're being told like, oh, but this is in your language. Right. So that's the kind of big picture. But as is the case with lots of the languages that I guess we work on, to get there, we need to know just about how the variation right. <laughs> happens and how it plays out. Is the rural urban variation? We would expect so, but what does it look like? And then 
because of the language contact element as well. So these languages are in contact with other languages and they're also in contact with each other. So I've just come back from a trip where I was based at the University of the Free State and you have communities there which are really like um, Sesuto and Setswana speaking and people kind of move between the two or quite happy in both and things like that. So that's also interesting whether they influence each other. And I suppose from a larger perspective, like how do you decide, oh, this is a Setswana word or this is a Sesotho word when the languages are already quite similar to start with, right? So yeah. structurally they're closely related and things like that. Are, ge- um, are they genetically related? Yeah, okay. yeah. So genetically related and then also spoken in the same kind of geographic area, high levels of, you know. That sounds so hard. So it's hard, but it's like, <laughs> so this also taps into some of these other questions that I suppose people are working on about concepts of sort of like translanguaging and things like that. Like we have this idea that this is language X and this is language Y, mm-hmm. but what if, you know, we and our communities speak two or three of these, perhaps to varying degrees, and on any given day I'm moving between them. Actually, as a linguist, I don't know if I want to come and say like, oh, that word is from this language, because yeah. it doesn't necessarily matter. Yeah. Although, of course sometimes for identity and all sorts of other things it does but the project also has a really a sort of part that I'm really committed to so the last two weeks ago we were running a couple of uh, training workshops for local researchers and students who are really interested in language documentation and description and linguistic analysis so hopefully as a result of that we've got lots of people who now want to look at morphosyntactic micro variation on languages they speak yeah you know communities that they're part of and and we were doing things like, yes, you know, Elan and, and Flex and things, but also just saying, these are some of the questions that are really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, is this your, is this this language? People saying, it was great to speak to people like, I speak this language and I think there are at least five dialects, but is there any references on this? Can I read something about it? And you're like, no, but you've identified a fantastic research gap. project, a gap, you know, go ahead and do it. So there's two parts. There's a sort of research that uh, Christina and I are doing together. And then there's hopefully, you know, spreading the enthusiasm and the skills for other people to do the research themselves, because in many ways, they're much better positioned than I am to do. Yeah, this research. yeah, definitely. That's so cool. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what community collaboration has looked like for your research? Absolutely. I suppose it sort of has a few different kind of forms. So when I was working on Rangi, there's a a couple of Rangi speakers who are linguists um, working in Tanzania. And they were great in that I could have a conversation about the fact that I thought there was a inclusive and exclusive distinction in the first person plural possessive pronouns. And they were also great in saying like, oh, that's a really good person to talk to if you want, you know, a Mm. story, right? Like it's nice to be able to have that kind of both of those kind of conversations. So that was nice to have sort of linguist and sort of say like, oh, I think actually this is a you know seven vowel system or I think, you know, it's this. They were also able to put me in touch with the people who I ended up mainly working with in terms of doing interviews and sort of you know, kind of informants and consultants. I think because of the kind of context in which I was doing that work, also it was really important that people just like also looked after me. <laughs> so I stayed actually at a, a convent. Um, I was living with Catholic nuns who... You know, one of whom was a Rangi speaker and the others whom weren't. And it was really nice that people were able to say, OK, this would be a good place for you to stay for a variety of practical reasons. It was like the third year of sort of droughts in that area. And they're like, they have plenty of food. They have you know water tanks like this is a good place to stay. But also like, you know, stay here and people will know how to find you. They'll know where you are because, yeah, if you turn up in a place where you don't speak the language and you have two sentences, Basically, everything you do is just relying on, yeah, kind of community to work with you. So then I had one sort of main person I would work with and I would say, okay, I'm interested in stories. And he would say, okay, these are the people to talk to. And, or, you know, this week I want to just 
sort out the future tense and this is a good person to talk yeah. to about. And then more recently, yeah, increasingly working with researchers at universities, so University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, oh, yeah. um, which is really nice, Got had a, been part of a few projects with, with them and it's great to see what their research agenda looks like as well because it's really easy for me to go, oh, I want to work on this. And it's really, I think, it's been a real insight to see what kind of linguistics they're wanting to do. So, yeah, linguists, academic linguists based at universities have been great. And then, yeah, broader kind of people who end up, I suppose, being your friends and you walk here because, they, you know, you need to get to another village and they tell you this is a good place to you know, yeah, find People recognise you on the street and yeah. just start. Well, there's no chance that, you know, they wouldn't recognise me or just recognise <laughs> that there's someone who'd, who is definitely not from there who's, you know, uh, in town. But yeah, it is. It's like you couldn't do any of this work on your own. Like, uh, even if you're working on your own language, right? I mean, your, your intuition takes you so far. Yeah. But everything is just off the basis of people's, like, generosity and time. And some people get really excited about the work. Mm-hmm. And some of them are just happy to answer, like, you know, questions for an hour. And then you can see they can't wait to like, yeah. get away as quickly <laughs> as possible. Yeah, that's so funny. So how how did you end up at the convent? Did you <laughs> arrange it beforehand or, like... Yeah, a little bit. So, so... Kondo, which is the closest town, was sort of, I knew I was aiming for that area. So that's the sort of administrative centre of, of the district. But I knew that I didn't really want to be in town. And also because of the linguistic diversity, not that it's bad, but there's people speaking lots of different languages there. Basically, what I did was be led by people. So they said, OK, if you want to get the pure Rangi, in scare quotes, <laughs> you should go to Halby. And I said, well, actually, I was told there were two options. You could either go to Halby or you could go to Pahi. Haobi or Pahi would both give you pure Rangi, but I think Pahi had bigger snakes and bigger rats. Oh, <laughs> so I was like, Haobi sounds like my kind of place. But then also there was the suggestion that it would be very easy, like you can phone ahead and say to the convent, like, you know, is there space to stay? And I think, poor things, they thought I was coming to stay for a couple of nights and oh, you know, no. ultimately ended up there for sort of nine months the first time and then, you know, a few more months later on. But yeah, that's it was people saying this would be a good place to go and then this would be a place that has space and food and, you know, is dry and 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 it was. They were wonderful and that gave me a completely different insight again into the life of <laughs> Tanzanian nuns. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Such a unique experience. Yeah, it really was. It really was. And yeah, so only one of them was a Rangi speaker because the nuns are very much, and actually also the, the fathers moved around a lot. So I guess the idea is that they're not from okay. there. Okay. But one of them who was also a trained, um, she, she was medically trained, so they had a clinic at the at the convent as well. So people would come for, um, and she was a Rangi speaker. So that was also nice. And she was from the area and things. So that kind yeah. of helped sort of connections and things yeah that's cool um i laughed so hard when i saw your note under this question and you wrote boring (laughs) but what major equipment do you use in the field (laughs) um yeah it is because i i I don't go all wow for the you know equipment so yeah i still use a zoom h2 which i bought the first year i started my phd which is now over 10 years ago I think although I don't like to count um and I use that I have used it with like a non-name no brand I wouldn't even know what it was called microphone you can tell that I'm not really flying the the flag no, but for the I training think, I'm supposed to I think this is good though because always people want to say that they're using the newest most cutting edge most expensive thousand dollar microphone but you can do 
language documentation and research without that stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think so. I'm sure I would have higher quality, you know, recordings. I'd be able to do acoustic analysis and things if I had other equipment. For my purposes, one of the important things is I was off grid, so I was using a very small solar panel, and I was actually just using batteries. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this Zoom can keep me going for you know as long as I need until I get back to town. I can get some more batteries. I can transfer all my files across. It was really, you know, I was doing everything else by by hand. So for my purposes, actually, that was a good balance between I need this recording yeah. um, and this is my limitations. And I know I could have taken yeah video cameras. And actually, most recently in South Africa, we did also use a, a I think it was a Canon. Uh, we did use a, a video recorder. And it was really nice because, you know, we had some sort of like uh, yeah, the sort of gesture and it's nice to see, see what's going on. And I think particularly for transcribing and going back and looking over the data, it is really nice to have yeah. um, the video. But yeah, if you want to know the ins and outs of different microphones and, and things like that, then I'm certainly not the person to talk to. No, I think it's good. We we aim to represent the full range of linguists. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what a typical day for you is when you're doing research? Absolutely. I think actually this is something that's been has been quite consistent across what I've done and I usually have my day kind of chunked into three parts probably. So one part I'm usually doing some kind of preparation, second part I'm doing some kind of elicitation, recording, getting somewhere to be with some people, and then a third part where I'm doing some kind of very initial, very preliminary analysis. Mm -hmm. So even when I was working, you know, for a really sort of sustained period of time, like nine months, what I would be doing is in the morning thinking what I needed to work on that day, writing down some sentences, mapping out things that I like were gaps from the day before. In the afternoon, either walking to or spending some time getting to where I was going, or if people were coming to me, that always saved a bit of time. Recording, talking, introducing yourself, explaining who you are, if, if it's the first time you're meeting. And then afterwards, as soon as possible, like you're often absolutely exhausted, yeah. but really as soon as possible. And I, and I write while I'm recording and I write while I'm talking. Often it's completely illegible, but like the idea is that you can immediately start some like, oh, that's an interesting thing. Just big circle around it or a big, you know, yeah. exclamation mark. Because what you want to then do basically is the next day ask about it or, or whatever. And of course, if you're working with the same person over and over again, you sort of think, oh, I'll just ask that next time or next week. But it's really easy to go off and never come back to that. And then you're writing it up or you're doing some presentation. And you're like, the perfect sentence to prove this point I forgot to ask because I never came back to it so I think yeah I think actually I have tended to do most of my data collection in the afternoons but like really it doesn't matter so there's a sort of before a middle and an after Um, and when I was in Halby often it involved quite long walks to people so sometimes that was like okay one day you're walking and then you know like you stay there or whatever but yeah if people coming to you that's sort of much um, easier and then depending on access to electricity and things some kind of complicated backing things up converting things so you've got them in as many different places as, as possible and so that basically the next day you're ready to go somewhere in there like feeding yourself and having a little bit of recovery time as well hanging out a little bit but yeah, really, it can be quite a grueling, like, you know, even if you're basically working for an hour. Like, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of preparation beforehand and then hours and hours of time afterwards when it really gets down to kind of transcription and stuff. That's Yeah, so much work for like such little, absolutely little gains sometimes. And that's one of the things, I mean, about being interested in language contact, one of the things that's really interesting there is it's always felt a bit like looking for a needle in a haystack Mm -hmm. because you really don't know what you're looking for. And then I found like, oh, this is interesting. But like, you've got to kind of have quite a broad outlook and then find a feature, but yeah. often by chance. I mean, you can have a bit of an idea of where to look. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a lot of work for 
what ultimately ends up being quite a short chunk of time <laughs> or one sentence, one ungrammatical sentence. <laughs> so true. So this is the last question, but based on your experiences and your own research, what would you say to someone who's just starting out and they also want to do similar research? Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, it's it's really difficult. I was sort of thinking about this question. I, I didn't really come up with a kind of nice little, uh, you know, kind of nugget of an answer. But I do think to really be driven by what you're interested in is really important. And I think that relates to any kind of work, any kind of academic work. If you're working on a PhD, if you're working on an essay, I mean, you're going to be spending a lot of time doing it. So if you're interested in it, then that's a massive starting point. And I think with that comes maybe like a little bit of patience. So even if we're sort of trying to pick apart this idea of fieldwork a little bit, ultimately, yes, I may be spending an hour asking someone sentences that help me understand exactly how WH questions are formed. But on the day-to-day basis, I'm also like living somewhere else, meeting people, having food that's different. Some of it's nice, some of it's not fantastic. Like not to sort of think like, oh, I'm only working. I'm only valuable in that like one hour when I'm sitting Mm. with someone. Because often the informal conversations, regardless of what aspect of language you're looking at, are when some of these insights come. And you've got to look after yourself as well. And I think that's also really important. And that's the same if you're doing this kind of work here, right? Like if you're stressed, if you're unwell, if you're not looking after yourself, it just gets harder and harder. So I think sort of being led by your own interest and curiosity, being patient and kind of taking a broad kind of holistic view if you want. And then, yeah, self-care. And I think that's probably true for many of the things we do in this in this world as well. But just like looking after yourself, because yeah, if you're not sort of approaching 100% then yeah it's really difficult to to keep going and and also to give to yourself uh, to others as well right I mean again not to have this kind of extractive approach where you're going in asking people things and wanting things but like what can you contribute while you're there like listening to people talking to people sharing experiences um you know you want to be able to contribute yeah um, and it might not even be linguistic right like people might not be interested in the recordings they might rather have I don't know their their family's restaurant menu translated into English or yeah. whatever. Absolutely. Or just like, you know, I met people who were, well, actually of all ages, but particularly I think meeting women who were just really interested in what life was like in the UK, you know, or, or outside of, you know, in my case, Tanzania, like, well, what's, what's school like there and what's this like there? And it would have been really easy to sort of think like, oh, this isn't like the main this part isn't of my, my job. Yeah. yeah, this. And there are days, of course, when you don't want to be that kind of person who kind of had to explain explain things, or you want to be able to walk down the street and be anonymous. And yeah, lack of anonymity is one of the things that I've found you know hardest over long chunks of time. But really, like, yeah, if people are interested, then they're interested in the same way that I'm interested in you know their lives and their communities. So to try and explain and sort of paint the picture that yes, I'm here, and oh, that's what school was like or that's what prison's like in the UK or you know all sorts of questions that you don't really see coming but just to have that time I think is is really important and hopefully some of these relationships will be ongoing as well so you may go back or you may go back to visit you may go back in the kind of linguistic you know work capacity but yeah to see those as like just also people living their lives who you want to have a connection with yeah yeah definitely Thank you so much, Hannah. This was so nice. This Thank you. This is really great. So lastly, where can our listeners learn more about your work? If they want to get in touch or read things that you've written, where can they do that? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I am, I'm quite active on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle's It's the Gibson. 
um, which you can find on Twitter. And I do something also, which is a Swahili word of the day, um, which I sort of curate. So we have other people who contribute to that. So if you're also interested in learning a little bit of Swahili, um, we do little sort of daily tweets Monday to Friday from that account or from others with uh, the Swahili word of the day hashtag. Um, for my academic work, so probably I have a profile page on the University of Essex website. So Hannah Gibson, University of Essex, Googling that should come up. I'll link and it. And that would be great. And then all of my publications and things are open access versions of them are all available there as well. So yeah, and feel free to send me an email or, or tweet me if you're interested or want to get in touch or if people have, you know, want to know more details because I'm yeah really always happy to, to talk to people. Cool. Thank you so much, Hannah. Thank you. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco and our logo is by Evil Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Field Notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple podcast review. Thanks for listening.